Welcome to the Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 12, a conversation with an interesting person, our friend Dr. Gerald McDermott. Now, Jerry, welcome to the Hammer and Quill, and welcome back to God's Country, Virginia. Thank you, Jesse. It is good to get back to the land of lovers and the land of mountains and ocean, the land where we raised three sons for 26 years. Mm, you know, you could be. this could be a commercial for Virginia Living. Yeah. This is so great. Now, how how are you, how are you guys doing? Michael's here in the uh, we're, we're Jerry's joining us via Zoom, but we're here in the global worldwide headquarters of the Bonhoeffer House in Radford, Virginia. And uh, you know, speaking of Radford, Virginia, here in my home, in my property, uh, I had something very embarrassing happen to me this past week, um, and so I thought, what what better thing to do than to tell about it? Uh, I was playing soccer with my kids. And Jerry, I don't know if you can see this, but right in the middle of my forehead, I have uh, not just a cut across my forehead, but a, a kind of round, um, bruised <laughs> oh, area. It's huge. It's huge. Uh, well, it's I, huge, Jesse. I didn't think it was that big, but... Um, I was wondering. It makes you look like a unicorn. <laughs> I, re- I really was this morning. I was like, did Jesse do something to his forehead? Yes, I did do something to my forehead. I was playing soccer with well, my what kids. What did his wife do to him? <laughs> He's telling us the story about a bird feeder. Sure, sure. <laughs> this this is what happened. Is I was playing soccer with my kids, and uh, now now to be fair, my wife is the one that put the bird feeder at forehead level. Mm. Um, and and so I was playing soccer with my kids, and uh, me against three of them. So I was trying very hard. Uh, I was trying very hard, and and that's the embarrassing thing is this happened because I. I had decided to turn it on, you know, I was losing. Ooh. And so I thought, now I'm going to really turn it on and I'm going to play hard. And so I'm like shoving kids out of the way. <laughs> I'm body checking them. And I didn't play soccer growing up. So really, I'm just trying to use my size and strength. And, uh, and so I'm looking down at the ball, kicking it. And I just, I, I don't even know what happened. I just hit the ground. My forehead was on fire. I had blood streaming down my face. My hat went flying. My glasses went flying. I didn't even know where my glasses were. Whoa. And then I realized, and my kids are standing over top of me like, what happened to dad? Yeah. And I realized I, I ran right into this metal bird feeder. And um, and that was that's it. That's you, the story. You got felled. like the, I was felled. Like the Goliath, the soccer Goliath that you were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I lost the game. When, when did you say that was? This again? was on uh, Thursday of last week. So almost a week ago. Ouch. Yeah. Let's jump in here with... Dr. McDermott. Now, our podcast here is all about the good, true, and beautiful, really uh, looking at the lives and vocations of interesting people through a Philippians 4.8 kind of lens, which Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. So we want to take a little bit of time here with Jerry and stop and look at your life, your vocation. We want to know about your tips and tricks and habits. And so first, uh, I want to say the reason we wanted to have Jerry on is Jerry has been a longtime friend, uh, instrumental even in, in some of our uh, theological thinking and development years and years ago as, we, as the Bonhoeffer House first took form. We were just reminiscing about uh, how it's been five years since Jerry uh, left our region. And so quite a bit has happened in the last five years, but early on, very inf- influential in us. As a matter of fact, I remember one time, Jerry, you, you invited uh, one of our classes into your home. And uh, I'll always remember this. We're, we're in the home. We're asking you questions uh, about the, I don't even remember what we were talking about. And um, you you casually mentioned, you said, well, oh, oh, I remember we were talking about N.T. Wright. This was p- probably in the big justification, new perspective uh, conversation uh, years ago. And right. um and you were you said uh, well when Tom was here last week we actually had this conversation and we all were like Tom Tom who what do you mean Tom <laughs> and uh, you said, no Tom, Tom Wright it was when you guys had him up at Roanoke College uh, and so Jerry has yep. taught a course uh, on the theology of Jonathan Edwards with some of us through Southeastern Baptist <clears throat> Theological Seminary been a friend and mentor along the way and really modeled the role of pastor theologian now on the other side of retirement as of just. A few weeks or Last months month. ago. Yeah. Last month. And so, yeah. Jerry, here's what we ask all of our guests is introduce yourself and tell us what would be on the back of your baseball card. Well, it would say that Gerald McDermott pitched his sixth grade Little League baseball team to its championship. 
<laughs> and then he failed miserably at baseball ever after mm. the rest of his life. Mm. Uh, he's the father of three sons, grandfather of 12. Wow. Former uh, um, teacher and principal in his first pro uh, professional life. Met my wife in a Christian commune. We lived in Christian communes. Well, I lived in Christian communes for seven years, she for nine, and the two of us as a married couple having our first few kids for five years in, in these wonderful Christian cults. I mean communities. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm an Anglican priest and a theologian. I like to speak on the lecture circuit, and I like to write books. I taught at Rona College for 26 years, and I just retired after five years of teaching uh, mostly Baptists and non and non denominational um, students in their twenties and their thirties uh, at Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University. The last five years in Birmingham, Alabama. I love the uh, you know we're going to come around. I want to ask a follow up question about uh, how you go from life in a commune slash cult slash community whatever whatever descriptor you want to use there to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Anglican theologian running the Institute of Anglican Studies. But so, so let's start with, um, you know, we're really all about exploring how God is honored in a variety of callings uh, and vocations. So tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing these last five years, your vocation at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. Well, I, uh, my principal responsibility was to teach history and doctrine. Uh, Beeson Divinity School, unlike I think any other seminary in the country com uh, um, combined systematic theology classes with church history classes and taught a five semester sequence required of all uh, masters of divinity students hmm. called history and doctrine. The first semester was spent simply on the fathers, the whole semester. And we just read primary sources. We, we for the most part, don't read textbooks just primary sources. Then the second semester on the medievals and the early Reformation up through Luther. And then the third semester on the late Reformation, starting with Calvin and finishing with the end of the 18th century with Wesley and Edwards, the uh, two premier uh, theologians at the headwaters of the evangelical movement. And then finally the fifth semester or, or the fourth semester on the 19th and 20th centuries and a fifth semester called history and uh, ethics, or, or a doctrine in ethics, excuse me. So uh, I taught all of the first four courses. Um, uh, so I taught a large, uh, uh, you know, wide range of Beeson students, but I also taught a course once every two years on Jonathan Edwards uh, seminar. I taught a seminar uh, once every two years on theology of the world religions. You know, the first half, what are the third group? Um, um, what are the great world religions, the second half of the semester? How are we as Christians to think about them? And then I taught a number of courses in Anglican studies. So a course in sacramental theology, a course in, in, history, in Anglican history and doctrine, and then I helped teach a course in liturgics. And basically, uh, much of the other time, I was mentoring young, you know, future pastors, mm. and 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 during the five years there, writing articles and finishing uh, seven point two five books, seven and a quarter books, um, and uh, being teaching pastor at our Anglican church and uh, speaking around the country and, and different parts of the world. So, um, you know, I didn't get too too bored. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a full, full vocational life there. And uh, you, you know, I want to jump back in that that idea of teaching, teaching through history. Mm -hmm. um, that is yeah. that is unique. Uh, you know, we both we both have our degrees from Southeastern, and we we had a separate class on church history. Then we also had a class on Baptist history. Baptist history, um, which was right. Okay, and then uh, uh, I had previ I previously took a what sounds like a maybe um, more of a uh, a similar course. John Frame taught at, Ar at Reformed Theological Seminary on uh, the history of of Western thought, but that was more of kind of a, a history of philosophy and theology. But it was one yeah. course, and yeah. and so I haven't heard of it taught that way. That does sound right. unique. Now, why do you, why do they do that at Beeson? Yeah, um, I think because. In real life, 
you cannot separate history from theology if you're studying the history of the church. And um, it's, you know, hit, um, uh, Timothy George was the founding dean of Beeson. And Timothy George, of course, is Baptist. He's probably the best known Baptist theologian in the world. Uh, one, one of the most published, if not the most published uh, and, and, and respected Baptist theologians in the world. And he's a church historian and he's inherently theological. And it was his brainchild. And I think he recognized that church history too often uh, um, separates theology artificially from history and vice versa. Mm. Mm. Good. So, so is part of the goal of those classes to help students to see that the, de the development of doctrine is necessarily related to the historical context, the cultural context of the moment? Um, things like that. Yeah. Yes, to some degree. Uh, we want you know, students to understand how doctrine has developed through time, but also that there's an orthodox core that the great tradition has sustained through 3,000 years. I say three, not two, because I go back to um, the Jewish roots, and I've uh, you know, written recently several books and a whole bunch of articles on Jewish roots of Christianity. Mm. Good, and you know we're, we will link to those uh, the, those books in our show notes uh, if you're interested in, in, in more about that. Now, I, I'd like to dive a little sure. bit more into your journey from uh, meeting Gene at a commune to uh, right. being a and, and and at one point maybe were you a Baptist pastor? You got there's kind of a wild uh, uh, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you go from there to here. Well. Um uh, we experienced heaven and hell in Christian community. Mm. It was both. Uh, and we're very grateful for those years. Uh, during those years, I got a master's degree in uh, Christian school administration because I was a you know, school principal. And I also went back and got another bachelor's degree in history. And then when we left the communes, I started a, an inter- um, denominational Christian school for Fargo, Moorhead, you know, Fargo, North Dakota, Moorhead, Minnesota. They're a joint city, uh, um, joint area like Minneapolis, St. Paul. And the school was going great guns until I got fired. Uh, and I was shocked while well, I was demoted. And that was when I thought, well, maybe this is God's way of giving me a kick in the seat of the pants to go back and do what I had wanted to do, but was afraid to, and that is get a PhD. So we went to the University of Iowa to help put bread on the table. I became a Baptist preacher out in the cornfields, and I really enjoyed it, uh, even though I, I had never been ordained and I didn't have a uh, theological degree. I studied a little bit of theology, in that, and, and I had gotten a bachelor's degree in New Testament and early Christian literature at the University of Chicago, but it's sort of an anti-religious you know, institution, so it was helpful and it was not helpful. Hmm. Uh, so I was a... Uh, a, a full-time PhD student in church history and historical theology and also Asian religions at the University of Iowa for five years. And on the side, I, papped, I, I pastored this Baptist church, and I was thoroughly Baptistic in my theology. What went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could say the devil entered, or else it was the Holy Spirit. It was one of the two, definitely. Uh, I say that for sure. Um, one day I was reading my Greek New Testament and I had learned classical Greek in high school because I went to a, you know, you know, I grew up a Roman Catholic. I, I, I probably should have gone back further and went to a Jesuit high school in New York City. And I learned classical Greek there. So when somebody told me the New Testament was written in Greek years later, I went to the New Testament and started reading it and it was like, baby talk. Not quite, but it's so much easier than classical Greeks. So it was, you know, so whenever I needed an easy class in grad school, I just took a, uh, or, or no, in college, uh, 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 the University of Chicago, I just took a Greek course to lighten my load. Yeah, because, that's the same with us. Whenever we wanted an easy <laughs> yeah, course, we just went yeah, like I can tell. biblical yeah. languages. Yeah. So, um, so, so one day I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10, 16. 
And all of a sudden, the words just jump off the page of me, even though I'd read it hundreds of times before. The, the, the cup that you bless is a koinonia in the blood of Christ. And the bread that you break, that we break, is a koinonia in the body of Christ. I said, whoa, this is more than just a symbol of what happened 2,000 years ago. And then I read in you know Romans 6 and Colossians 2 about baptism. And they seem to refer to baptism not so much as what we do, but as what God does through it to us. And so almost overnight, I became a sacramental Christian. And then I really had a hunger for the worship of the early church. And that led me to a, uh, a, a desire for historical liturgy. And so over a number of years, I, I, I became an Anglican. I, I, I found a book of common prayer, fell in love with it. And... Uh, so in 1990, I became an Anglican, so 30 years ago. Mm. So uh, then I, uh, after getting a PhD and writing a dissertation on Jonathan Edwards's public theology, I applied for jobs all over the country, and I got only one on-campus interview at this college I'd never heard of, Roanoke. <laughs> and I thought it must be in... in I must be in North Carolina. Um, wasn't that the island, the lost, co- you know, you know, the the lost colony of Roanoke? <laughs> and I said, you know, and then somebody said, no, it's in Virginia. I said, there's also a Roanoke in Virginia. So they offered me the job, surprisingly enough. Um, and uh, and it, you know, they hired me to teach church history and the world religions. But over the course of time, I started to sort of train myself in systematic theology. And I started to write theology. Uh, I was writing books on Jonathan Edwards. I was writing books on the world religions. I was writing books on some other things. And I started to really want to do systematic theology. And so kind of like Clark Pinnock, who was trained in New Testament but became a theologian, I trained in church history and world religions uh, became a theologian uh, sort of as an autodidact. Hmm. Good. Now, uh, I have benefited greatly from the books you've written. Uh, I haven't read all of them, um, but of the seven and a quarter that you've worked on the last five years, I think I've read a few of them. Uh, and then over the over the years, you know, got I, I still give away one of them whenever I can. I, uh, uh, the Edwards one... Um, which one? The big fat one? The, the, the no, theology of Jonathan Edwards? That, that's way too expensive to give away. Uh, <laughs> seeing God. Um, seeing God. Seeing God. Yeah. 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 E- excellent. Um, yeah. That was my first book on Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now your most recent book, though, is uh, it's it's indirectly about Edwards, or maybe it's Edwards was a, a, a kind of muse, uh, but it's called Everyday Glory, the Revelation of God in all of reality. Can you tell us a bit about this most recent book, which we are giving away, uh, and I'll announce the winner of that here in a little bit, but tell us a little bit about your uh, most recent book. Well, um, it very much is an Edwards book because it's it's something that I wanted to write for years and years after seeing Jonathan Edwards's fascination with types. And Jonathan Edwards did more with types than perhaps anyone else in the history of Christian thought, at least in a systematic way. Uh, By types, he meant what the whole tradition has meant by types, which is God implanted signs in the creation that point to the Trinitarian God of redemption, not just the God of creation, as Calvin talks about in, uh, you know, you know, uh, um, the first half of the Institutes, but the God of redemption in the second half of the Institutes. Um, so, you know, many Christians want to talk about types in nature that point to the God of creation, but very few would go so far as to say as Edwards did, and, and as much of the tradition did too, actually, that God puts types of the whole triune God and the God of redemption and the work of redemption into his creation so and also into history and and even the history of religions so i was fascinated by this but i was writing a bunch of other books and i never got around to having time for it until i did a sabbatical and actually um 
went away, and that's the best place to do a sabbatical. You got to get out of town. Um, and wrote this book uh, in 2000. Um, what was it? Uh, the, 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 the winter and spring of 2017. Um, and, it, and it really is, uh, and I intended it to be, a fleshing out of what Edwards would have done in part of the great work that he was planning to do but never got to do it because he was cut short at the tender age of 53. Mm. He never reached his 54th birthday mm. because of the smallpox inoculation. Good. Now, um, I know Michael's in the middle of reading this. Uh, I just finished. I just finished today. As a matter of fact, I've been working through it in the last few weeks. Oh, everyday glory. Yeah, everyday Whoa. glory. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and um, so you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're gonna we're gonna cause a surge, and there's gonna be they're gonna be flying <laughs> off the shelf. Okay, Amazon's about to gonna... price uh, hike the price yeah. up. <laughs> because uh, you know, we were just talking before we had before we got you on Zoom, uh, Jerry, about how interesting the book is. So, so part of what where the appeal is to me is that it's not really like another book. Um, you know, there, I haven't read anything quite like this. Uh, and some some of the real strong parts that I'll mention, and we can engage a little bit about, is um, the recovering of the of the vision and even the even the kind of um, language or. Uh, um, framework for understanding and recognizing and being able to read the language of types was really, really helpful. Uh, the, the chapter on the Bible and, and even just demonstrating the pervasiveness of types within the scriptures, because I think, I think you kind of have to overcome that first is, well, show me types in the scriptures, you know? And, and so, um, and then I, well, the first thing I did when I opened the book is I saw there was a chapter on sex and and then it was like a spiritual discipline not to skip straight to that chapter. That's my. I up. knew you wouldn't want to read that, Jesse. I I made it just by just by sheer discipline. I said, you know what? That should have been the last chapter, in my opinion, because then because then because I was afraid I would get to the chapter and be like, all right, well, I I got what I needed, but um, but actually. The chapter on on science and nature, science especially, could be a standalone as far as, far as I think of people uh, um, who, who want to understand the relationship between Christ and science, the scriptures and science. Um, and then finally, that, that the world religions, you know, it's, it's clear on the world religions chapter that uh, you're bringing not just Edwards, but also just a wealth of your own experience teaching and, and writing in world, world religions in a really helpful way. Uh, so I just, I want to say thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Recommend it to our readers. Yeah. Um, you want to add anything there, Michael? I do have a question. I just, uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm not, I'm not halfway through yet. Um, but I, I really, enjoyed you haven't got to the sex chapter yet. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> Hurry up, man. Um, it's, it's been really fascinating for me. You know, you mentioned really early on that the old Testament as a whole is a type um, and that was a, a fascinating, you know, thought experiment for me. Um, and, and then you, you provide ample evidence to back that up. Um, but I, I found myself marking up and, and underlining the first two or three chapters every, every couple paragraphs because, uh, yeah, it just was, it, it was, it, I feel like I, I want to be re-enchanted uh, in my view of the world, in mm -hmm. my in my view of uh, life as a whole, not not just creation, but but life in general, and so I, I think I was encountering a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts that that I wanted to wrestle with. So, yeah, and interesting, he he mentioned the reenchantment, and so let, let's dive in there because there does seem to be. Uh, in my humble opinion, there seems to be a little bit of a um, a project in the evangelical theological world of um, maybe following Charles Taylor in his his writing and thought into a, a sort of reenchantment of the world. But as a, but in general, um, we're we're not known for a robust natural theology or, or revelation. Uh, so how how might your work here with Edwards and types? How do you do you see that helping? you know, helping us uh, have a more robust view of natural revelation, natural theology? Well, that's what I'm trying to do. The historical church until about 1900, Protestants and Catholics both, 
believed in two books, the book of nature and the book of the scriptures, through both of which God revealed himself and continues to reveal himself. And the second one, the book of scripture, is the key to understand the first book, the book of nature. Mm. Uh, Luther and Calvin taught natural theology. Um, Jonathan Edwards taught natural theology. It wasn't until 1900, uh, well, after 1900, uh, it wasn't until the, the dominance of Karl Barth and his theology, uh, his capturing of mainline Protestantism, starting in the 1960s and 70s, um, that Protestants started to disbelieve in uh, natural theology. Well, I mean, Barth became very influential starting in the 30s. And that's when Protestants started to disbelieve in the existence of natural revelation. Karl Barth denies, denied, I mean, he's dead now, but his books are very popular, uh, especially amongst evangelicals. Now he's, he is the cool you know, theologian for evangelicals who want to be really uh, you know, theologically sophisticated to read. Um, and Bart denies natural revelation. He flat out denies it. And Bart would say the only revelation we have is in Scripture. And yet, and yet for Bart, because of his doctrine of Scripture, which I think is severely flawed, uh, you can't even have any guarantee of revelation through the Bible because the Bible itself is not the Word of God. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes down and zaps a particular passage in the Bible or zaps you as you're sitting in the pew uh, listening to a sermon that, that is preaching on Scripture. So because of Bart and, and because Bart is becoming so popular in evangelical theological circles now, um, uh, um, yes, the evangelical world needs to recapture what the great tradition taught has had, you know, taught for 1900 years before Bart, that God does reveal through nature, and that therefore we ought to reflect on that revelation in something called natural theology that is thoroughly legitimate. Now the problem is uh, the reason why <clears throat> uh, so many Protestants have lost lost faith in in, in in any kind of natural theology is because Bart identified natural theology with um, the deistic attempt starting in the Enlightenment to try to prove God from reason and talk entirely about God from reason and reject scripture. And also because of the Nazis mm -hmm. whom Bart was facing and the Nazis had their own kind of natural theology based on blood and soil. Mm -hmm. And Bart of course was right to reject that, but I'm afraid he threw the baby out with the bathwater. And suggested that any kind of natural theology is somehow of a piece with the Nazi attempt to uh, um, uh, create a new vision of God. May I just read to your listeners the table of contents? Oh, please do. Or at least part of the table of contents. Because I have noticed that the, that the three people who have actually bought the book, my... <laughs> my uh, my sister-in-law and uh, two of my students, whom I forced to buy it, my first invite, uh, they were really intrigued after reading the table of contents. Yeah, yeah. So after some introductory chapters, I go in. Uh, I have a whole chapter on nature. What, what, how, how do we see types in nature? Then a whole chapter on law, natural law. What is natural law, and what does that mean? Uh, so types in human law. Then, then a chapter on history. Uh, now that means mostly secular history, not sacred history, but secular history. Mm. Where do we find God's types there? Um, then, then a chapter on animals that focuses on birds and dogs. So what do we learn about God from birds and dogs? Then, then the chapter on sex that Jesse really wants Best you to chapter. read. Best <laughs> chapter. Uh, uh, and then a chapter on sports. And I told you I was a baseball star in the sixth, sixth grade, grade and then I fell apart. After, I, I absolutely fell apart after that. Um, but a chapter on sports, uh, particularly on, the, on, on baseball. Um, what, what do we learn about God from sports? Then a chapter on the world religions. And then finally, the last chapter, New World, 
is talking about how do we see the types of God in, in our uh, daily schedule? From the time we get up until the time we go to sleep, mm. where are the types of God? Now, uh, in addition to, obviously, everyday glory is our number one go-to for natural theology now. But in addition to this, is there is there somewhere you would recommend our listeners who want maybe an introduction to natural theology? Uh, where would you send them? Well, I cite a number of times Alistair McGrath's uh, book from about, I think it's 2013, is it? The Open Secret is brilliant. Uh, so Alistair McGrath is among the few who are trying to revive natural theology amongst Protestants. Good. And, and I try to argue, to argue in this book, Everyday Glory, that natural theology is biblical. I mean, Psalm 19, 1, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the earth declares um, uh, his handiwork. Uh, his handiwork. Thank you, Jesse. Um, it's one of the few Bible, and, it's one of the few passages I have memorized. So I'm, I'm actually thankful you, you got stuck on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Score. I know this one. And, and Romans 1, you know, starting in verse 19, yeah. that Bart completely uh, misinterprets. And I go into the details of this in the appendix at the back of Everyday Glory. And, you know, Jesse's memorized it, so he can just, you know, <laughs> just call him and he can recite it to you. But Romans 1.19 starts, what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, who are the them? All human beings. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Who are the they who are without excuse? All human beings. Even the head, you know, the headhunter in Borneo. Uh, even the atheist, even the agnostic, uh, even the new atheist, he cannot say to God on judgment day, God, you didn't give me any evidence for existence. God's going to say, of course I did. Uh, I open your eyes to the book of nature. And I was screaming at you through the book of nature that I am here and I am, e I am eternally powerful and I am divine. And I am obviously the designer of this beautiful, fascinating universe but you ignored it so you have no excuse mm. so so uh so i think you have a current project what are you working on right now um well i've got two of those 7.25 books in 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 press they're both done and they're both and they're both waiting to be published and and they're both collections of essays mostly by other people i was the editor of both uh, and i have an essay in both um so the first is coming in on october it's called covenant and race and it's, um, uh, it's all about new ways of thinking about race. Now, I know no one's thinking about race these days, so probably no one will be interested. But most of the authors are black. Two of the authors are um, uh, rabbis, one academic. Uh, well, they're both, they're both academics, uh, one in Israel, one, one here in the States, uh, a few of us white guys. Um, and, and I would say it presents a way of thinking about race, linking it to biblical covenant that is totally contrary to the dominant narrative we're, we're hearing screamed at us every day hmm. today. Uh, as we speak on June 10th, as we're, you know, as we're recording this, uh, the second that's in press will come out sometime next year is called Jewish Roots of Christianity. And this is my third book I'm bringing out on the meaning of Israel. And this, too, is a collection of essays that comes from a conference we did at Samford, uh, some of the top scholars in the world. And it's all uh, cutting-edge stuff. It's not same old, same old. It's wonderful essays by top scholars, top theologians, and, and uh, um, uh, scholars in Scripture um, on, on Jewish roots of everything Christian far more than most Christians think. But the big book that I'm working on right now is one that's been contracted for a few years and I'm a little bit, well, I'm quite a bit behind on it. You got to stop taking it's these called, podcast interviews. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got to stop doing these podcasts. Um, it's, it's called a history of the work of redemption and Jesse. That sounds familiar. Know where that title comes from. 
this was a, uh, a series of sermons that Edwards gave in 1739, uh, well, 38 and 39, in which he outlined the history of redemption, starting with the councils of redemption in eternity before the creation and ending with the uh, new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. Uh, so including all of church history. And I am so foolish as to, and this was just the outline of this big book he was going to write. And I am so foolish. Really, I'm, I'm an idiot for trying to do this. But I am, I am crazily trying to flesh out what, what he would have done if, he, if the smallpox had not struck him down. Mm. And, and I want to put it in under 500 pages and put it in prose that non-theologians can understand. And I want to bring in all my stuff on sacramental theology, liturgical theology, the world religions, and Jewish roots. And so it's got 37 chapters projected. I've, I've already written three. I've only got 34 to go. And uh, uh, it is due Christmas to 2022, unless I can negotiate a later date. <laughs> that wow. sounds absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I I look forward to it. I will pray for you that you have the energy to write it. it. Uh, and, you know, um, three out of 37 is at least a start, right? Now, as you look back, you're now a few months or what, about a month post-retirement at Beeson. Uh, and yes. you're clearly not done. You're writing. you got 34 more chapters to write in this book. Uh, I'm sure you have other, other commitments uh, and vocational work coming up. But as you look back over your career... Uh, I'd love to know, like, uh, what what is it that you're most uh, most proud of in your in your career as a theologian? Well, in terms of books, I think you know my books on Edwards, my books on theology of world religions, um, my books on Israel, and the ones on Ed on uh, on Edwards and Israel are getting the most attention these days, uh, especially Israel. Uh, and now this new book I've got coming out on a race, uh, you know, I don't know what what's going to happen with that, but I do think it has a lot to say about our current divisions in this country. Hmm. Um, so I'm, um, you know, God in his providence has led me to write these particular kinds of books and articles, and uh, uh, I'm thankful. But I've also... You know, more than anything else, I, I, I have really enjoyed my mentoring of students the last five years at Beeson. Uh, I always wanted to teach graduate students and to teach in a seminary, and this was a, a great opportunity I, I got, and I'm so thankful for it. But, of course, I'm most grateful. I'm most grateful for our 12 grandchildren, which, I, which, which is one reason I retired um, mm. to, to, to be able to spend more time and participate in their homeschooling because they're all being homeschooled. Good. And how did you navigate your commitments uh, to your family and to your work? You know, you're, you're, you're describing what is a prolific, uh, 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 at least a prolific late career in theology, writing left teaching, and right, yeah. teaching. You essentially, you know, running the Anglican Institute studies at, at Beeson. But you also have a family and you're committed to your family. How did you navigate that through your career as a theologian? Well... Listening to my wife, <laughs> whom the Holy Spirit often speaks to, to Amen. say, Jerry, what in the world? What, what were you thinking? <laughs> uh, that, now, now, that doesn't mean I always think everything she says is from the Holy Spirit, but mm. often it is. Mm. Um, you know, she is a great uh, manager of the oikumene, the, the, the household. We knew that because we took Greek as just... Fun, fun classes in seminary. <laughs> yeah. Light to lighten our load. <laughs> we needed an easy A. And, you know, it really makes a difference when your wife is a great mother. Um, and she's also, uh, she's an artist and she's mechanical at the same time. Uh, I am all thumbs when it comes to mechanics and all that. Um, I, you know, I'm not a gardener. I have no interest in being a gardener. I hate mowing the lawn. Um, uh, so, and, you know, Jean doesn't mind cooking and running the household and taking care of things, and that gives me time. And plus, 
now another secret is uh, um, getting up early in the morning. I don't, you know, I know lots of fellow theologians and authors who are who are prolific and productive, and I don't know one who doesn't get up very early in the morning. Mm. And I've uh, I've always been blessed by um, by having that kind of body clock, and, and I like getting up very early. Uh, I love it when it's dark and it's quiet, and the phone's not ringing, and nobody is demanding things of you, and I can read and pray. And get a lot of work done before everyone else gets up. Well, that's a that's a tremendous time to transition. I wanted to ask you about some of your vocational habits. Um, so, so when you say very early, some people hear very early and they think, what, like six thirty? It just depends who you're talking to. If you're right. talking to a college student, which there are many of around here, that's like nine o'clock. That's the nine o'clock service is a early, challenge. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, what do you mean exactly when you say very early? Well, when I'm really humming and working, and, it, and for much of the last five years, when I worked harder than I ever had in my life, because I was doing so many different things, uh, plus working on these books and speaking and traveling quite a bit, uh, four o'clock in the morning, um, I'd regularly get up. That is very early. That's very early. <laughs> what do you start your morning with? Um, well, at some point in there, I, I do... Uh, either with Gene or by myself, um, um, the daily office. Now that's what, you know, um, Anglicans and, and Anglican priests, uh, uh, we take a vow when we're ordained to do the daily office every day, morning and evening, uh, morning prayer, using the prayer book. So it's also, we, we read systematically through the scriptures, uh, following the Anglican lectionary. Um, so every every morning you're you are reading a psalm or two, an Old Testament text, um, uh, a gospel text, and an epistle text, and, and every evening the same thing. And you have prayers that are not just intercession for others, although um, that's included, but also praise and and using these wonderful liturgies of the historic church to simply um, uh, to adore God. Mm simply adoration. And so that's, you know, that's sort of food for the soul that gets me through the day. Mm. So in order to get up regularly at four, what, when are you, what time are you going to sleep? Um, I will go to sleep anytime. Be, uh, well, typically um, nine, 10, very, very occasionally 11. Okay. But usually nine, nine, nine or 10, you know, you know I would get six or seven hours sleep. Sure. Yeah, because uh, the challenge for yeah. me is trying to figure out how do I fit in two hours of watching The Office <laughs> in bed and still, <laughs> still get up at four. Well, uh, well, well, here's one tip, and I don't recommend it for everyone, but, but our first year of marriage, um, a very wise Christian woman, um, I asked her, actually before we got married and we were engaged, Margot, what's your one piece of advice for our first year of marriage? She said, don't get a TV your first year of marriage. Mm. And because it inhibits conversation, you know, it's so easy to, to turn on the TV and just bitch. So we didn't get a TV for our first year of marriage. And then at the end of the year, Jean was pregnant. And we said, you know, it's been good having that quiet. Let's, let's extend it another year. We're bringing a baby, in, you know, into the family. And so we extended another year. And before you know it, you, you, you knew it. Uh, we had no TV at all until our first um, uh, sabbatical, year-long sabbatical at Princeton in 1995 and 96. So we went to Princeton, and, and they give us this big house with all three of our boys with this huge screen TV. And all year, the boys watched TV. So then we, we were driving back at the end of the year to Salem, Virginia, and I said, boys, you know, you've, you've been watching TV all year. Do you want us to get a TV now? And all three boys said no. What? And I said, what? and I said, why not? And they said, dad, it's so noisy. Mm. Now, if you know my boys, they, they are not quite introverts. They're all extroverts. So they're noisy themselves, but it, it, they noticed how much noise it brings into the house and they didn't want it. And none of the boys, now they've all got their own families and their own kids. And none of them has a TV. Now, 
they watch plenty of movies mm. on their laptops and so forth, um, as we did, uh, as we always did. It's awesome. Now, uh, some other, some. Other, I want to get into a few more habits before we go into our lightning round. Uh, Jerry, you are, uh, you know, you have loaned me some of your books before, and uh, you're a, you're a writer. You write all over your books. You've got underline. You've got you are right. You're you've got. Tell us a little bit about that. Like I, I learned from you there, but it'd be yeah. nice. It'd be nice to to, yeah. to hear about well, that practice. Um, I think I learned that from Jonathan Edwards. He said, "Always read with a pen in hand." Always, you know, I, uh, Michael said he marked up his book, books, and I was very impressed. <laughs> um, always, uh, you know, circle, make marks in the margin of the most important things, and especially if it's an important book. So when you go back to it, then you don't have to read the whole book all over again. Just go to those points that you've already marked as the most important ones. Um so I do that all the time. I mark up all my books, including my Bibles, all my Bibles. And I've used, I don't know, 20, 30 Bibles in the last, uh, you know, 45, 50 years. Uh, and they're all marked up. And, and I've got notes and, you know, you know, those little notes in the margin. This really applies to Jesse. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, the other thing is... Uh, um, you know, people often ask me, how do you write so much? Uh, I say one, one thing is, is, um, I, I think about it all the time and I get really irked about things that need to be said and it bothers me. And I think about it and I think about it and think about it and, and, and I'm a runner and I think while I'm running about these things that I really want to write. And it's, and I compare it to, although I never had a baby, my wife's had three, I compare it to being pregnant and women who just, especially in the summertime, they can't wait for the delivery because it's so uncomfortable. And when you get a book in your head that you haven't written or you're in the process of writing and you, and you just dying to get it out there um, and it feels so good when it's done. So, so, you know, sort of like the guy who hits his head against the wall because it feels so good when he stops. <laughs> well, you, or, or, a or a bird feeder. Bird feeder. Yeah. You know, you're, you're going to, uh, that's going to be uncomfortable for you then for having 34 more chapters to write. And so, so we'll keep praying that those, that those come out. And, you know, you're, you, you, I, I, thinking back to the books that you've loaned me, you are also uh, not a, you're not a neat underliner, are you? You don't use a straight no. edge. Oh, oh. No. oh no, just, 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 you just go just just like up. a barbarian. <laughs> I, I, as long as you can read it, you know, six months later when you come back to it or six years later. Mm. So I'm curious with the, the work that you're, you're talking about, um, the carrying on Jonathan Edwards project, uh, yeah. In, yeah. in the creative process that you're talking about of, you know, kind of yeah. birthing this book is, do you, do you have, you know, not just a pressure of wanting to get it done and have the satisfaction of getting it done, but with this project in particular, do you feel a pressure that you are, a, are attempting to further the work of someone that you've studied and, and respected for so long is? Well, yes, but it's a good pressure. I mean, it's a pleasant pressure to have I mean, this is, I think, my eighth or ninth book on Edwards. And um, I've done so much on Edwards. It really is kind of pleasurable. And in fact, I, you know, I have to say, I've got a few more things on my desk I need to get done. And I can't wait. And, and um, uh, I, uh, I want to get to the book, even starting this week and certainly by next week. And I'm really looking forward to it. So, um, you know. Good. Now, let me ask one quick follow-up here. Yeah. Uh, before we go to lightning round, you know, you gave me the advice, Jerry, that that uh, that, that to have one theological mentor from history. Yes. You know, and Michael brought Jonathan Edwards up for you. Uh, why do you no. advise? Why do you advise that? Because you only have so much time, and and I and um, you want to not only be broadly knowledgeable, you want to have knowledge of theology and life in depth. Um, there are too many preachers out there who, who, who are so superficial and don't go deep. And, and so I suggest that every preacher, 
uh, fix on one great theologian and read him for the rest of his, you know, for the rest of your life. But here, here's my caveat. Uh, Make sure he's also a saint. There are plenty of great theologians who were also saints. Um, Athanasius, uh, um, um, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Luther in many ways, Calvin in many ways, Edward certainly, not, not Karl Barth. Mm. Karl Barth lived, lived in serious sin all the time he was writing the church dogmatics. Serious, serious sexual sin. And his wife and his mother both kept arguing with him about it, and he justified it theologically. I, 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 uh, um, so, so if you're going to give your free hours to going deep into theology and the great theologian, make sure he's also a saint. Yeah, and you, when you say saint, you mean uh, someone who is virtuous, who embodies uh, the, the very theology, yes. Christian theology, the writing about. Who lives a life, not of perfection, because none of us come close, but who lives a life of holiness. Mm. It's like it's akin to picking a, a mentor because in in a way you are yeah. gonna so familiarize yes. yourself and yes. submit yourself to this person that they'll be almost a friend and a mentor. Um, Excellent. Yeah, you know well, that's a good point, Michael. You know, somebody famous once said the the a student, when, when he's fully taught, will be like his teacher. Mm, someone famous said that. I, I So I have one, one more question related to that. How, how do you do that? How do you pick this, this saintly theologian uh, quickly? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you have to read well, something that, that they've written, or, or would you recommend hearing from a mentor or hearing from someone well, hearing from a mentor is good. Uh, you could also read a book like The Great Theologians. Uh, you know, it was written by a lousy guy, but, but I think it's a pretty good <laughs> book. And it's sort of a survey of the history of theology. And it introduces several great theologians who were also saints. So read, read something that gives a, a, an overview and a cursory look at these men and, yeah. and then choose one yeah. and dive in. Love well, it. that's one way. That's one way to choose. I mean, there are other ways, like uh, asking somebody who really knows his, his historical theology well. Good, good. Now, we're going to go into the lightning round. We're out of time, so let's go through this, okay? Now, what we do here is we, we're going to just rocket some questions at you, and you're going to, just as quick as you can, just give us the quick, off-the-cuff answer. So if you could write one book, and it was guaranteed to sell, what would you write? <laughs> a, a children's book about Nutty Nut. Nutty Nut is 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 a little uh, uh, acorn whom we found in Israel at the bottom of, 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 of a big tree. We, we brought back to the United States, and he tells stories in, in his children's sermon every week when I preach. And he's been a character in our family, and he lives with us. And um, uh, one of my daughters-in-law is going to illustrate it, and, 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 and someday I want to write that up. Amazing. I love that, but isn't there already a children's author named Gerald McDermott? Yes, yes, there is, and he's uh, uh, he died a few years ago. Okay. He wrote a lot of uh, books, and people often mistake each you're, of us. You're for not the other. him. You're not him. But you, but you may take the mantle of writing children's books. I love it. Nutty that was, nut. That was maybe the best lightning round answer. We've <laughs> I was not expecting <laughs> that either. But I love it. Okay, what is the book you've given most as a gift? I just gave it last week, um, The Sabbath, by Rabbi um, um, Abraham Heschel. I recommend it to every seminary student and aspiring pastor, and even more so to every pastor. The Sabbath by Abraham Heschel. Interesting. Okay, that'll be in the show notes. If you could be mentored by any pastor in church history, who would be on your short list? Well, Jonathan Edwards, of course. Uh, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Henry Newman. Mm, mm, good. Okay. Uh, all right. I got another one. Best book of theology for the average Joe. Well, I already mentioned the great theologians. Uh, a lot of average Joes have read it and, and, uh, uh um, so it was the first book on theology they could understand. How about the best book of theology for the pastor theologian? 
I'm not sure who wrote it, and maybe you, you know, Jesse, you might know, but it's a book called The Cost of Discipleship. <laughs> we know him. Excellent. That Dietrich, would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer. Yes. Yes, love it. And love also, it. also Life Together. Mm. Life Together, also Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Excellent. What is something under $100 that every theologian should own? Well, certainly The Theology of Jonathan Edwards' big yellow book. <laughs> That's barely under $100. under $100. There it is. I have two copies. Oh, you do? That's and, and, and secondly, if you want to be up on one of the two great heresies of today and how to refute it and why it doesn't hold up and why it destroys every other doctrine once you adopt it, you have got to get, it's only, I think, $90, Michael McClyman's book, uh, The Devil's Redemption. Mm. The Devil's Redemption. Now, it's huge. It's 1,400 pages, two volumes. And it's not something you 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 necessarily need to feel that you have to read cover to cover, but it's a great resource for your ministry, your theological ministry, the rest of your life, because it addresses the uh, great heresy today against the doctrine of redemption, which is universalism. Mm-hmm. Now, the other great heresy today, of course, is against the doctrine of creation, and that's and, and that's the heresy of marriage. Mm. Mm. Okay, we'll link to that in the show notes in case I'm going to take a look at it. That's that would be an undertaking. Fourteen hundred. Theo- well, rich. Well, we're we're pages. we're we're deep into Calvin right That's now, right. so we're going to have to put that one off. But we'll link it in the show notes. What's the worst yeah. advice that you regularly hear given to young pastors and theologians? It's all grace, man. Mm. Now, mm. of course, as an overall framework, it is all grace. But unfortunately, the way that's interpreted typically is that you avoid God's teaching about holiness mm. because you think it's salvation by works, which is uh, shows a terrible reading of Scripture. Mm. Uh, and if you're not preaching holiness at the same time you're preaching grace, then you're really not teaching biblical grace. Amen. Now, um, now another way it comes out is like this. And every sermon with grace. Well, then I guess Jesus was not a very good preacher because he sure did not end the Sermon on the Mount with grace. Mm. Or it also goes like this. Justification is the only important doctrine. And every sermon needs to include justification. Well, I guess Paul wasn't a very good preacher because the one time he had a chance to preach an apologetic sermon, an apologetic lecture to pagans who had never heard of Jesus, he never once mentioned justification or even the doctrine of justification with other words or love. And what does the average, the average evangelical think he has to say if he has a chance to talk to all the students, all those pagans in Radford? Well, he's got to talk about God's love. He's got to talk about justification. Well, I guess Paul was not a very good evangelical then. Mm. Fascinating. I love it. So that's Acts 17. Sermon on the Mount yep. is, uh, you know, Matthew 5 through Mar- 7. Mar- Mars Hill. Mars Hill, that's right. Good, good. We've got another one. How do you get unstuck on a project? What are some tricks if, you use to break through? Yeah. If it's a project I've already started and I've gotten away from it and I need to get back to it, it's hard to get back to it, I need to go back over all my notes and everything I've written so far to get my head back into it. If it's something I really haven't started or, or I've started, but I just can't seem to get over the hump. Well, then there's only one solution. Keep on reading. Uh, I need to read more. And you, and you, and here's a general rule. You read and you read and you read all the best authors on, on the different perspectives until you know you've read enough and you're ready to write. And that time will come. Mm. You know you've read enough. And then just a little practical tip. I always set deadlines for myself. And you can ask Gene that. Uh, I set a deadline for when I have to have my research done by, for when I have to have my outline done by, and for when I have to have my first draft done by. Excellent. Excellent. Last question. Uh, What advice do you have for a young up-and-coming theologian? Stay in the Word systematically. When I say systematically, I mean... Read the whole Bible um, in systematic way. Don't just stick with your pet books. Mm. 
second, serve in an Orthodox church. The danger of doing theology is to do it, A, without prayer, and B, without the context of an Orthodox church, where, where you're a servant in that church. The third thing is learn historical theology. Too many theologians, all they know is, you know, John Piper or whoever the latest hot writer is in the evangelical world. I would say make a resolve for a year not to read the latest hot evangelical or theological book. Don't. Instead, read the greats. Spend a year reading only the greats and especially the fathers who are closest to the original explosion of revelation called Israel in the early church. Amen. Excellent. So the one exception that we would we would suggest making for reading recent books would be Everyday Glory by Jerry McDermott, which you definitely are going to want to pick up and read. That's right. Uh, and uh, <laughs> hey, thank you, Jerry, for joining us. Uh, say hello to Jean. Really, really appreciate her ministry in your life. Uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to episode 12, a conversation with Jerry McDermott on the Hammer and Quill. And listen, we before we go... Uh, I did draw at random a uh, a person from our giveaway, uh, our book giveaway on Instagram. And so Tanya Strange at Reliant Farm, uh, you have won a copy of Everyday Glory. Now, now full disclosure, <laughs> I accidentally, I, f- I forgot which copy was the copy that Baker, <laughs> you know, Baker Academics sent us a giveaway copy. And about halfway through, I switched books. So I've now marked up two books halfway, half of the fir- the first half of one, the second half of the other. So so lucky for you Dr. McDermott, I'll be buying a new copy in order to give away one that does not have my notes especially from the sex chapter to Tanya Strange. Thank you for everyone uh commenting on Instagram for that. We'll be doing more book giveaways in the future, but for now Thank you for tuning in. Tune in next week. We have a really interesting interview with Trillia Newbell about her life and work as an author and speaker. Please subscribe, review us on iTunes, throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time, peace. Peace.